0: Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday, 11th of August with me, Ian Welsh. We have a bumper episode this week. Recently, I was pleased to speak with Jodie Halla, Director of Public Affairs at US Pork Farmer Christensen Farms. We talked about some of the bottlenecks that are hindering the development of more sustainable practices in food production value chains. And when he was in New York recently at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, Toby Webb caught up with a regular guest in the podcast, Bank and co-founder Stephen Bethel. Their conversation is very much worth listening to. First, though, is my colleague B Stevenson with a roundup of some sustainable business news.
1: In May, we reported on Ecuador's completion of the largest ever debt for nature swap in the Galapagos. This week, Gabon has completed a deal on Africa's first ever scheme of this kind. The deal will see Gabon buy back $500 million of its international debt and price an eco-friendly blue bond of the same size set to mature in 2038. Debt will then be sold to Gabon at a lower interest rate with a longer maturity. The Bank of America were instrumental in arranging this deal, whilst the Nature Conservancy provided advice. In debt swaps of this nature, a country's debt will be bought by a third-party bank or investor and replaced with cheaper debt. This is underscored by a credit guarantee or risk assurance from a multilateral development bank, in this case the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. The key criterion for this is that the savings are then used to fund conservation projects. Gabon has previously committed to protect 30% of its terrestrial, freshwater and marine habitats by 2030. According to the Nature Conservancy, it's already established 20 marine protected areas across 20,060 square miles, representing around 26% of its ocean territory. This swap is likely to help expand the country's marine conservation abilities. Leaders of the eight Amazon rainforest countries have gathered in Brazil for their first major summit in 14 years, with the aim of agreeing on a common goal for ending deforestation by 2030. The nations who make up the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization agreed to a list of unified environmental policies and measures to enhance regional cooperation, including an alliance for combating forest destruction. However, they failed to agree on the 2030 goal, which Brazil's President Lula has already adopted. Of the Amazon countries, Bolivia and Venezuela are the only ones not to sign a 2021 agreement of over 100 countries to work towards halting deforestation by 2030. Reuters has reported that a Brazilian government source said that Bolivia, which has seen a surge in deforestation, is reticent to make this commitment. The final joint statement underscored the importance of indigenous rights and protections and agreed to cooperation on water management, health, shared negotiation positions at future climate summits and sustainable development. A new rule in Greater Los Angeles is set to transform commercial food manufacturing by reducing carbon emissions. The pioneering rule, effective from 2027, will require around 100 facilities operating a total of 218 commercial ovens to meet a zero emissions limit for nitrogen oxides, a harmful pollutant. Finished foods, which are prepared in these kinds of large commercial ovens, include baked bread, various kinds of crisps, including tortilla chips and roasted nuts. The new law will mean replacing gas-burning ovens with electric alternatives. The initiative aims to eliminate a major source of gas demand for California, with the food and beverage sector accounting for over 38% of industrial gas demand served by SoCal Gas in 2021. It will also help to tackle harmful pollution produced by the ovens, in order to clean up smog and high levels of fine particulate matter in the greater Los Angeles region. While companies argue that the electric oven market isn't fully developed, this move is intended to encourage the production of all-electric models and eventually to promote the adoption of zero-emission technology nationwide.
0: Following the recent Innovation Forum Future Food USA conference in Minneapolis, I was delighted to speak about some of the issues raised at the event with Christensen Farms Director of Public Affairs, Jodie Halla. We're going to be reflecting on some of the conversations we had at the Innovation Forum Future of Food event in Minneapolis. Why don't you start by giving us a bit of quick background to Christensen Farms. What do you guys do? So Christensen Farms
2: is a family owned farrow to finish pig operation. So what that means is we've got the breeding herd and we take those pigs all the way to market. We've got operations in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska and Illinois. We got our start in 1974 when our founder, Bob, and his brother, Lynn, were given two pregnant female pigs by their neighbor for a 4-H project, and Bob was 13 years old at the time. Fast forward 49 short years later, we have about 1,000 employees and work with over 300 farm families and about 1,500 contract partners. And Other than the sites where our company-owned farms are located, we don't own any farmland, We purchase the corn from local farmers and mill most of our feed. We have five trailer washes where we sanitize all of the trailers where our pigs are hauled on. The other thing that is kind of unique is knowing that live operations are very capital intense and commodity markets can be fickle. A group of other family-owned producers got together and built Triumph Foods in St. Joe, Missouri. And then some years later, Triumph partnered with Seaboard Foods to build STF in Sioux City, Iowa really unique to our system is that our research teams are able to work all the way from the genetic selection all the way to the product that consumers eat and that allows us to shape the decisions on farm that impact the consumer's eating experience. Kind of a cool place to be. I've been there for 25 years and both of my sisters work there as well in different capacities. It's been very fulfilling.
0: How are you seeing more sustainable agricultural practices developing and what are you guys doing in that area?
2: As you know, it's a very, very broad topic. To speak maybe a little bit just to Christensen Farms, we anchor them in the four Ps, people, pigs, planet, and prosperity. And you pull a lever in one and it impacts another so they don't operate independently. For us to make decisions that have the highest impact in an area and minimize any unintended consequences anywhere else, we've opted to do our own LCA using our actual data and information that's relevant to the region that we operate in. So we're just wrapping that up right now in the very final phases, and we're very, very excited about actually the specificity that we've been able to get to. We're really going to use that to identify the areas of greatest opportunity for us, whether that's in our in feed, whether that's transportation, whether that's in our electrical use, to determine, again, where that biggest area of impact is. The other thing that I'm really excited about is building in the sensitivity analysis to understand if we change, for instance, a housing style for ourselves, or if we change a feed ingredient, if we make an intervention, you know, relative to a vaccination or something else, we can really understand what's going to have the biggest impact. We've also partnered with a company to do remote sensing of the land around our farms that we own. We don't operate any farmland, but we've mapped all of our company operations And we've outlined all the characteristics. So whether that's the size of the farm, the type of animals that are there, the ventilation style, the manure structure, all of it to to try and understand what is driving any differences that we might detect from remote sensing. We've got 22 years of monthly data on 170 locations. And so we actually worked with statisticians to evaluate that. And what we learned is every year is different. There's natural inherent variation from the northernmost Latitude to the southernmost latitude of our footprint, there's significant difference. Our farms and where our pigs are, they're they're surrounded by grass and trees and that all is undisturbed. Every year, from a CO2 point of view, our farms have been a sink of carbon. So that was really kind of fun to see.
0: And what other things are you doing?
2: This is, I think, the hard part. So obviously, we're looking at renewable energy. There's a lot of focus on digesters. And I think that's a great solution for the dairy and cattle industry. I think it can also be a great option for those that live in maybe a warmer climate than what we're at here in the upper Midwest. The methane from pigs is is the ratio was 1 to 43 of a dairy cow. The contribution of methane by pigs is significantly lower and our ability to capture that is somewhat limited, particularly in a cooler climate. We're looking at other sources like solar panels Looking at ways to reduce the energy intensity in our farms. Again, really efficient motors, lighting, turning the dial to the the extent that we can.
0: What do you need from the rest of the value chain in your sector to help make the improvements you want to make? Where are the bottlenecks and frustrations?
2: It does really go back to the trade-off. So again, being a protein producer... As a group, we can get really fixated on one component of sustainability. And if you think about the UN SDGs, the 17 SDGs, I mean, that really covers everything in people, pigs, planet, and prosperity. For instance, if you change a preference on housing style for animals, that can have implications on worker safety. It can have implication on the land use. It can have implication on the intensity of the inputs, the the feed. The energy, even the animal welfare itself, understanding that not losing the forest for the trees, I guess, pun intended. <laughs> I think we all struggle with finding a consistent measuring tool. It was really interesting at the forum to hear all of the different guidances that are out there and they continue to change. And listening to all the other CPG companies struggle with how to make that happen. I think that's one thing that we're all really wrestling with is what we're going to rally around and anchor to. Finally, I would say that recognition that this is anything but a one size fits all solution. And it really needs to be looked at globally with local application for what makes sense in that region.
0: Thanks very much indeed. Jodie Halla from Christensen Farms. Thanks, Ian. Coming up now is a conversation my colleague Toby Webb had in New York at the Innovation Forum Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event with Bank & Vogue's Stephen Bethel.
3: Why don't you just tell us a bit
4: about Bank & Vogue for those who don't know about what you do? Hey, thanks, Toby. Yeah, so, Bank and Vogue is a Canadian-based company. We are buyers and sellers of used clothes. And on the office door, it says "innovative and relevant solutions to the crisis of stuff." So, we find homes and reuse purchases for used clothing. But you do quite a lot of it, don't you? What sort of scale are you operating at these? We, the fun thing about life is in our world is, is it's a very scaled business. So, we sell about four million garments a week of used clothes. Where do they go? everywhere. <laughs> so, so, so we sell to 27 countries around the world. Um, but what's really fun is that we have a, a chain of stores in the UK, Sweden, and Finland, which trade under the name of Beyond Retro. Some of the innovation work that we're really proud of, we've partnered with Converse, and we're making the upper for the Chuck Taylor shoe out of post-consumer or secondhand clothes. What's really great about that story is it demonstrates that used can be an input to new and as we are all trying to figure out how do we actually make product that is a lower carbon uh, impact or what does a a low carbon production look like making things from things that already exist is the easiest and quickest path it seems like
3: a pretty obvious idea but of course the infrastructure and systems that, you know, traditionally haven't been built for it. So, just before we talk about the conference, just how has that changed in the last few years? It's
4: funny, I actually want to go to the conference, because what was really fun about this conference is there was a combination between the fashion space, the, you know, that I love and play in, and the ag space, so there was the, the concept of regenerative agriculture. And the reason why I bring it up, I loved attending those sessions about regenerative agriculture, what does it mean, you know, is what's this new space. The irony is that this regenerative agriculture, and it, it came up at the conference, is actually just doing what we used to do 100 years ago. And the irony is what we are doing as, as Bank & Vogue is we're, we're doing what people used to do 100 years ago. You know, they had you know, old bits of clothes, they would cut them up and make them into quilts. And they would celebrate it, and they would be done in a community base. And this idea of repurposing and reusing, just like the the regenerative agriculture about going back to how we used to farm 100 years ago, it's amazing how the intersections of the ideas of let's go back and go back to maybe the practices we were doing before mass production. The two worlds actually... The same theme fits on it. Quite Really quite exciting. Yes, the
3: past is colliding with the future, with much larger volumes in play, which means for you it's
4: a great opportunity because there's so much stock around. If only you can get a hold of it. Yeah, absolutely. On one hand, one could lament about the amount of clothes that are being made and produced and sold. Americans buy 450 million pairs of jeans a year. The uh, average life expectancy of a pair of jeans in an American closet is two and a half years. So the volume of denim, as an example, that's available that we can cut up into make into new things. The scale is in front of us. Hmm. And, it, and it really does create incredible opportunities. Yeah, well, it's good to see you doing so well.
3: What are your reflections on the conference? I mean, you've been involved in our European events. We held the European version of this a couple of months ago. And to me, it was quite a different dialogue. Yes, some of the same brands with some of the same challenges, some of the same suppliers with some of the same issues and opportunities, but culturally, and I guess from a regulatory point of view, quite a different approach. What are your reflections on this conference? What are you taking away
4: from it? First of all, I think it's really great that the Innovation Forum is one of my favorite things to attend, and even some of the people that were new that sat around me said, you know, it, it, this is actually a really engaging, we're actually having conversations about a subject. And there were some good shout-outs by people who were calling out speakers to say, hey, wait a minute, your you know, your glossy brochure says X, but when we look at, you know, your report, it says Y. There were some good, honest conversations, which I think is the themes that I've seen in Amsterdam that you know carried over to the US. It's certainly the tone is slightly different given the regulatory environment that, you know, you have the big government over in Europe and, you know, sort of the laissez-faire here. And it was interesting how many times a lot of the brands said, look, we're going to have to do it anyways because the Europeans are making us. And on the other hand, I think there were some, there were some also some opportunities that the American brands, their approach because it's not only there's a lack of regulation, but then there's regional regulation. So the California conversation came up, the New York conversation came up. In one hand, there is less government, but the government's also more fractured here mm. in terms of its legislative approach. You know, sort of leading states that wove into the conversation through, through the day, which was
3: through the last two days. We had one speaker here, because the conference was under the Chatham House rule, I won't say who it was, but a former very, very senior exec with decades of experience, and he sat on stage yesterday and said, we're just messing around the edges until we have a level playing field that needs to be driven by some basic regulation to encourage circularity, as is happening in Europe. And he said large companies should be coming here, not just the privately owned ones, and demanding to be regulated because that's to their advantage. It's the only way we're going to do this. Do you agree with that? And do you think there's any
4: chance of that happening in the US or North America in the next five years? As somebody who is sorting for and supplying recyclers at scale, I desperately want regulation to come because the only way that people are going to pay that green tax, we've proven at a lab scale and at a moderate scale the, the, the circular fashion, the idea of taking a garment and then somehow mechanically or chemically recycling it and turning it into a new fibre is completely doable. But no brand will take the jump and pay the green tax at scale without regulation. So 100% agree with the speaker yesterday that we desperately need... Regulation, And it might be that that regulation comes that the global brands who operate in Europe will have to create a standard and that will get sucked in. But I would say that there are some bright lights up in Canada. The Canada being always halfway between Europe and the United States hmm. is adopting some rules. So that might also kind of nudge things, you know, in a very Canadian way. Absolutely, I don't think circularity at scale will happen just based on goodwill, and I feel like that's was a big common theme yep. throughout the day, yesterday, and again and, and today.
3: It's been put to me that a state-based approach would just create too fractured a framework to work in the U.S. Do you agree with that? I mean, you mentioned New York, California. You know, there are
4: parts of the U.S. where the debate is very different from other bits. Yeah, which is the fabulous, you know, this sort of fabulous nature of the U.S. It will be interesting to see for sure California, and there were many speakers that spoke about the regulation and what is coming in California and how some speakers got up and spoke about how the brands are saying, we definitely want EPR, but we want it to be effective EPR. I thought there was one speaker today that articulated that very well. Yes, we want EPR, but we want it to be effective EPR. That actually gets to the goals Hmm. as opposed to... Maybe, and there was a point that was made today that some of the way the legislation is written now, that the brands that are shipping in product from away could actually get around the California rules. Hmm. So I thought, once again, at the Innovation Forum, there was good conversation about specifics, and particularly when we come up with this California conversation. I think it, it was it's some good thinking, you know, and some good shares.
3: Where else in the world do you see real innovation happening here? Because it's easy for us to get very US, Canada, European centric. We've had some great remarks here at the conference from those working in Pakistan and in India and other places. Are there any other parts of the world where you see real innovation happening to try and drive circularity?
4: There was a really good conversation from one of your speakers who said, look, my family is now living in 46 degree weather. We, as supply chain members, are motivated to make change. And this is another theme that came up. Certainly the work that we've, we are doing with brands, there's an admission that a lot of change doesn't necessarily come from the brands. It comes from the supply chain. The brands might claim that they did it, but really, a lot of the, the innovation comes from that supply chain, mm. and of which that supply chain lives in the Pakistan's and the India. And obviously, our facility in India, I'm excited about what is actually happening in the circular space in India as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I think- mean, we met the founder of Usha Yarns,
3: and they seem to be, in Chandigarh, they seem to be doing some amazing stuff at scale.
4: Yeah, I think that there is... Times the conversation could be somewhat hubris in the north that, oh, great innovation happens in Europe and in the US. Mm. But really, there's an enormous amount of amazing innovation that's happening, at least in my lived experience, both in India and, and Pakistan. Final question. Do you see some of the industry organizations,
3: of which many have been represented here at the conference, needing to raise their game to get some of those bigger brands in line with the smaller privately owned ones, all looking for the same approach
4: around circularity, for example. It's funny that there was a question asked of one of the industry groups that was advocating for living wage, as an example. And of their members, how many were actually achieving the living wage goal? Or there was another conversation about one of the questions was, hey, if you're professing to be at a standard and you're clearly 60% behind on that standard... I think that the associations, they need to step up their game and be a little bit more aggressive in their relationship with their members. But it's a funny game, isn't it? Because they want them to pay to play to be part of their membership, but then they gotta kind of herd them in a certain direction. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a funny relationship. Yeah.
3: How far can you push them? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Or, Can you push them? (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for your time. No, no, Toby, one one last thing
4: I have to say for those who have seen Toby in action in Amsterdam, he definitely represented the good sort of British perspective and was an amazing moderator here. And a lot of people around me said, you know, this was just engaging because Toby was kind of shepherding the cats. So, you know, well done (laughs) on your side. Well, thank you. I mean, great speakers like yourself make it easy for me.
3: So (laughs) thanks a lot, Stephen. Okay.
0: The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And we'll be back in a few days with our regular Monday briefing when B. Stevenson and I will talk about some things to look out for next week. But that's it for now. I'm Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.